Welcome to the Resourceful HDR podcast. I'm Sally Purcell, and in this podcast, I explore high degree research, HDR, career and employment experiences, how individuals have made career decisions, navigated transitions, and helped others to build a career. In Australia, HDR usually includes Master of Research, PhDs, and professional doctorates. I hope you enjoy this podcast. This podcast was recorded via Zoom, so I apologise for any sound issues. My guest today on the Resourceful HDR podcast is Dr. Alison Rice. Alison has a Bachelor of Science with Honours from the University of Adelaide and a PhD in Biological Sciences from the University of Bordeaux II in France. Alison has worked as a senior research scientist leading research groups focused on new therapeutic options for the complications of hematopoietic stem cell transplantation in medical research institutes in Sydney and Brisbane, respectively. In 2012, Alison made the successful transition to a career in research development, incorporating research policy, research management and business development at Griffith University. In 2018, she took up a role as a principal policy officer in Queensland Health, focusing on bringing content-specific knowledge about research to government to enhance import and export opportunities for Queensland's health and medical research sector. In 2019, Alison was appointed as the Deputy Director of the Synthetic Biology Future Science Platform at CSIRO. This strategic position aims to help build a vibrant synthetic biology research and development community to drive the bio-based industries of the future. Thanks for joining me, Alison. Thank you for having me. So in an earlier conversation, you told me that you were not a stellar student when you were at school. Do you think your younger self would be surprised at your research career and that you are now the Deputy Director Synthetic Biology Future Science Program at CSIRO? I think I would be shocked. (laughs) Yeah, I wasn't a stellar student. I think it speaks more to the fact that I wasn't particularly well engaged. I didn't find the subject matter particularly interesting. But I managed to get into university and enrolled in a science degree at the University of Adelaide. And as the subject matter became more interesting and more relevant, I found I just did better and better. And then I majored in microbiology and immunology. And I really enjoyed that because that had a real sort of medical focus for me. And I did an honours degree in immunology and I began to see that there were lots of really exciting opportunities out there. Yeah, so, and I guess the rest is the part of the story, isn't it? It is indeed, and an interesting story at that. So could you talk about how your father's work as a paediatric oncologist influenced your career? Sure. I grew up as the eldest of six children. My father's a paediatric oncologist and my mother a pharmacist, and we would spend our Sunday mornings visiting, going with dad to the hospital and visiting patients because that's just what happened. He was doing his rounds and he always had a very open relationship with his patients and their families and we became, in some cases, good friends. And one young girl who was very similar to me in age and we both swam competitively together she was diagnosed with leukemia when she was two. And, you know, obviously when I was growing up, she was very well. And I think she was sort of late, maybe adolescent, and then she relapsed. And then when she was about 21, she relapsed again. 
And at this stage, I was doing honours immunology and really quite focused on sort of leukaemia type research. And I remember saying to my dad when he told me she had relapsed, well, why don't you just give her more treatment? And he said, she can't, she can't have any more chemotherapy. And I couldn't believe that you couldn't do anything more for patients with uh, leukemia or and or cancer. And that really struck me. And I thought that I'd really like to change that. And I think that was a sort of a pivotal moment for me, realising that the research that I was uh, involved in and wanted to be involved in was particularly focused around leukemia and what you could do to offer uh, more options for patients with leukemia. Because it's, you know, it was and it still is a devastating disease. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and having that personal experience yourself with that friend. Yeah, exactly. She died at 22. And, you know, the challenges that she faced, she, I think I recall that she did get married, but it was, I just couldn't believe that your life and, you know, we were in parallel there and I had everything in front of me and she had a death sentence. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, and that's such a great reason to pursue what you pursued. Most people, you know, if they do something that's truly rewarding in their career, if they take the time, can identify some of those pivotal moments. Yeah, and I was very fortunate to get a job as a research assistant and it turned out the people in Adelaide that I was working with had made this serendipitous discovery that when patients have received chemotherapy for the treatment of leukemia, it causes their blood forming stem cells, which normally reside in their bone marrow, to kind of like overflow into the blood and in very large numbers. And they also made the observation that you could collect these stem cells. And so all of a sudden the idea became, well, maybe this is a new way to do a transplant to treat patients with leukemia. So I was really fortunate in my first job to be working with the pioneers of stem cell transplantation and that was a really exciting time for me. I was employed on a grant which a lot of people will understand so I had a a research assistant position for three years and I really enjoyed the work but I knew I wanted to do more and they couldn't give me certainty about whether I'd have a job because it was uh, related to grant success, which everybody will be able to feel. So I decided I wanted to go overseas. And so I asked the people I was working for for some letters of introduction. And I went on a fact-finding mission to Europe. And it was a really exciting time. You know, I was a young research assistant and somebody was prepared to write a letter for me so I could go and and set up some meetings. And so I went to London and I uh, met with a guy who went on to become the head of the NIH. And I didn't like his lab because it was underground in a broom closet, which was probably not the best rationale for making. And I went to Bournemouth to see some other people who had done some wonderful work in chronic lymphocytic leukemia, but there was nothing to do in Bournemouth. And that's no (laughs) disrespect to Bournemouth, but I was thinking, oh my God, there's gotta be more than this. And then I went to Paris and they said, yes, you can come. That's fabulous. We don't have a salary for you, but come. And I just didn't know how I would live in Paris on no salary. And then I went down to Bordeaux and they said, yes, you can come. And we've got a salary for you. So that kind of stitched that one up for me. And the people I ended up working with in Bordeaux, And they'd made the same serendipitous observation that you could collect stem cells from patients' blood after they've had um, 
chemotherapy, but they'd gone one step further and they'd actually transplanted patients. So these two people working in Adelaide and people working in Bordeaux had simultaneously made this discovery. So I was really privileged to come in and work in Bordeaux, being a research assistant with these people. You use the word serendipity and that is related to career research that's been done by Professor John Crumbolt. His theory was called serendipity and planned happenstance. It's really interesting, isn't it? We make decisions that as a young person, you might not have made as an older person. There's yeah. nothing to do in Bournemouth. I didn't like the, <laughs> the basement lab. But that then led you to Bordeaux and that was probably, well, who knows, but it seems like it was a, a right choice because, as you say, those two things that were happening in Adelaide and in Bordeaux complemented each other so well and really spoke to what you were interested in. I find that quite an interesting phenomenon I guess that you know one point you'll divert from and it ends up being a really great thing but you can't know because you haven't traveled the other road exactly and it's a bit sliding doors but it was the right decision and it was a pivotal decision for me it changed my life on so many different levels and it's one I would never ever regret Mm. yeah Yeah. fantastic because of course you Ended up in France, but that's good. <laughs> and, that was then, pretty good. <laughs> and then, of course, you then decided, or maybe you can tell us about how you made that decision to undertake the PhD when you were in France and the fact that you did it in both languages and yeah. about projects. So, if you could talk about all those things. Sure. I, when I'd completed my honours degree, yeah, I didn't think I was ready for a PhD and I wasn't getting any sort of indication from the people I was working for that I was ready for it and I was just really keen to work so I think it was really important for me to get that experience. Um, I also underestimated my abilities and a lack of confidence all that sort of thing and it was only uh, when I had gone to Bordeaux and whilst they did active research they didn't have actually dedicated researchers doing this sort of stuff so I was working within the hospital doing research and the guy I worked for, the late Professor José Réfers, he was a real shaker and a mover in France and internationally and he just created opportunities. And so he was always saying, well, you've got to talk about your work and you've got to submit an abstract for this conference. And so I did, and I submitted an abstract, a couple of abstracts to an international conference, the International Society of Hematology um, Conference, and it was in Houston in Texas. And the work got selected for oral presentation, and it was just like, oh, my goodness, I actually have to give a talk. My first, you know, my second international conference, you know, and I will be speaking, and that just blew my mind. And I had a poster as well. And anyway, so I went and I had a fabulous time at the conference and I met a whole lot of people. And one of the people I met was a guy called Armand Keating, who was an expat Australian working in Toronto. And he said to me, you know, why haven't you done a PhD? And I said, look, you know, I couldn't possibly ever do a PhD. I wouldn't wouldn't know where to start. And he said, you've got to be ridiculous. You are presenting the work that you designed and did and analysed at an international conference. Of course, you're capable of doing a PhD. I don't think anybody had ever said that to me before. And that really changed my thinking. So I was like 18 months in, no, it was just barely a year into my position in Bordeaux. And I thought, well, yeah, I am. 
And he said, well, come and do a PhD with me. And I'm in Toronto. And I thought, oh, that'd be quite nice. And then I thought, well, I could go back to Adelaide and do a PhD too. And they said, yes, come back if you want to. And then I thought, well, I could stay in France. And I was really torn because if I went back to Adelaide, I'd just be me again. And I wanted something more. If I went to Toronto, I'd have to start again. But if I stayed in Bordeaux, I could really build on what I was doing. And it was that sort of sense that I, almost a sense of urgency that I could actually really capitalise on what I was doing and start a PhD. And so I managed to get some funding from the South Australian Cancer Association. So I got like a PhD stipend, but it's, you know, living on $15,000 internationally per year is a bit challenging, but I survived. And, you know, the guy was right. I could do it. And I got six publications out of my PhD and I won prizes and I spoke at many international conferences. And yeah, it was a fabulous experience. I think having a five-year break, not intentionally, but gaining experience and confidence was pivotal to my success in that area. Do you feel that your self-doubt, did it stem from being a woman, do you feel, in the medical field? No, I think it stemmed more from not having excelled through school and university and then assuming that I wouldn't excel any further. Mm. So you, uh, you developed this self-concept. So having both parents who are high achievers, do you feel that had a, an impact on your self-concept? I think, yeah, I wanted to do better and I probably, I didn't, but I've done well later and I think as my father calls me the late academic bloomer and don't ever believe what the the, my year 11 biology teachers as I loved biology he said whatever you do don't be a scientist (laughs) have you been in contact with that teacher (laughs) no I haven't but I also had the the head of the school of microbiology after I'd done my honors so he I wanted to do honors and he kind of looked at me and said I'm not really sure and fortunately I had a very strong female advocate who was my supervisor who said of course you can do it you're doing it with me and then when I contemplated a PhD he just kind of looked at me and said you've got to be joking Um, and there are a lot of people who throughout my career have told me I can't do stuff and that's like a red rag to a bull because just watch probably they've done your favor well they've challenged me and yeah they've challenged me to demonstrate to them that they were wrong yeah and you proved it yeah It's interesting because I've just been having a little discussion on Twitter about that, having worked in careers for nearly three decades. And the number of people I've seen later who always wanted to do something particular, but they didn't because somebody told them they weren't capable of it. And I just Mm. am astounded that anyone thinks they're in a position to make that decision about somebody. When you look at what people overcome in life and what they achieve, that you can stand in judgment and decide what an individual can do. You're not them. You don't know. And particularly when they're quite young. So, Mm. you know, at 16 being told I could never be a scientist and then at, you know, 21, 22, you've got to be joking. It's like bad luck, buddy. (laughs) This is what I'm doing. (laughs) So well done to you. (laughs) So once you completed your PhD in France, you then did return to Australia. 
I did. I looked for positions, uh, a couple in the US, and they just kind of never really materialised. And then I decided, yeah, I'll go back to Australia. And I had explored opportunities within Adelaide again, but felt that that would be taking, not just taking a step backwards, because I don't mean that in a derogatory sense, but they knew who I was and I wanted to be somebody new. I wanted to be the newly minted PhD graduate, etc., and not have preconceived expectations about my abilities. So I was very fortunate to get a five-year position at the Children's Cancer Institute in Sydney. And my job there was to look at using cord blood as a source of stem cell transplants. So I uh, was fortunate to work with the people who were the first clinicians in Australia to transplant a patient with cord blood. So that's the blood derived from the umbilical cord when babies are born. And that was the 30th transplant in the world at that time. So that was a really exciting opportunity to be involved with that. And that led to the establishment of the Australian Cord Blood Bank and really revolutionised transplant options for people who didn't have a match donor, that sort of thing. So I've been very fortunate to work with pioneers in transplantation. Mm. Yeah sort of right place, right time, but also building a reputation and yep. you had a real desire to improve outcomes for people. Yeah, exactly. With cancer exactly. and leukemia. Yeah. So what were the differences that you noticed between research in Europe and Australia? I think it was really interesting in, well, I can talk about France. Medical research is funded nationally through something called INSAM, which is, well, there's no real equivalent, but it's like the nationally funded medical research and its career sort of positions. And then it's also conducted within hospitals and sort of blood transfusion centres, not like we have here in Australia, freestanding medical research institutes. And the other thing was that people are career researchers so tech people will become a technician a research assistant and they can have a job funded through the university or through INSERM for life and much the same with the clinicians they can get a joint position at the university in the hospital and it's sort of a permanent position and so this sort of transient grant funded uh, research we're talking a long time ago now, so this is late 80s, early 90s. That's what it was like. You know, people could apply for grants and we did get grants and that was to enable you to do more. But research was, it was a career. So you got your job and you knew you were going to have your job for life sort of thing. So speaking of that, once you came back from Europe, you were working in grant-funded positions largely. Yep. So can you tell us about what happened for you? Sure. So medical research in Australia is funded primarily through the National Health and Medical Research Council and they provide fellowships and grants. There's also sort of bodies such as the Cancer Councils and other sorts of disease-specific bodies that provide funding and then there's philanthropy. And I was very fortunate throughout my career to win three NHMRC grants to win a fellowship from the Queensland government to have funding from the Cancer Council and other philanthropic bodies and I guess when I came back to Australia to go back to my point about having a career uh, a lifetime job I had a five-year appointment uh, in the Children's Cancer Institute and then I got more money so I was able to employ staff and, and get students on board and have my contract extended 
And so I had between five and three year contracts. And then I was headhunted up to Brisbane in end of 2001. And I had again a sort of a, a five year contract and then it was a three year contract and then it was a one year contract. And, you know, it's pretty tough. And anybody listening to this will know how tough it is to exist on uh, the uncertainty of grant funding, particularly as research is expensive and grant success is plummeting. So that's the sort of the challenge. So as I said, I was very successful and then I wasn't. And right towards the end of 2011, I didn't get my grant, but I still had a fellowship that continued for another six months. And then I went to a budget meeting to discuss how we're going to move things forward. And I found that there were zeros on my budget. And I said to the person sitting in front of me, what does this mean? Does this mean I don't have a job? And they said, yes, didn't you know? And it deteriorated from there, as you can probably imagine. And it left me, you know, trying to work out, well, what does this mean? I'm a scientist. I'm an associate professor. I have students. This is my life. This is who I am. What am I going to do? Who's going to want to employ an associate professor without grant funding? And it was hideous, absolutely hideous. I did survive, as you can see. (laughs) But I think, you know, part of the issue was I, I suspected something, but nobody had the courage to talk to me. And it was probably good that I suspected something because I was able to take control. And so at this time, I reached out to a woman I had heard speak who was on board of the place that I was working at and asked whether I could come and talk to her and just to get some advice about what to do. And she was really kind because she took the time to, to talk to me and to tell me about other stuff that I that I don't think I'd actually registered because for me, <clears throat> a scientist was, you worked in a hospital or a lab or a uni, but that's what you did. And I didn't really understand that you could do other stuff. And so what she did for me was incredibly simple. She said I could contact these people and I could say that she had recommended that I reach out to them. An incredibly simple gesture that was so incredibly powerful that put the ball in my court because I had to do something about it and so I did and I went on another fact-finding mission to explore what was actually out there and the other thing that was really transformational as well what she suggested that I should uh, do the women in technology board readiness program now, Women in Technology is a industry body based in Queensland whose mission is to advance, empower and connect women working in ICT and sciences. So I applied for the program and I got in and I was the only science person in there. Everybody else was IT. But I found it a really illuminating experience because I felt like the curtain on the secret world of business had been lifted and all of a sudden I was privy to all this information. And it really helped me rethink the skills that I had. And during this time, I was sending out job applications and getting absolutely nowhere. And I had a spreadsheet of about 18 jobs that I had applied for. And I went to the Women in Technology annual general meeting and was speaking to people. 
who I didn't know, but it was just like, you've got to get out there and do something about this. And they said, you really should reframe your academic CV into business speak. And that was another sort of light bulb moment for me. And that really helped me think about what I can do and how I can use my skills in different ways and actually positively contribute. And so I did, and I got a job. <laughs> I got a job that came up. It was a research development manager at Griffith Uni, and I got an interview. And after you know, like six months of no interview, and you know, two months before my contract, you know, my source of income runs out, it was you know, I was feeling like fairly stressed. And you know, I got an interview, and I got the job. And it was they wanted somebody like me, which was they were concerned I was going to chuck it in and go back to science. But having seen the other side, I didn't really want to at that point. <laughs> And I guess what I would say is that the sort of the kind conversations that the woman who helped me suggested me to go to WIT and the conversations that I had helping me rethink my CV were instrumental to what's happened and they've helped me get really involved with women in technology. In fact, I got so involved, I got invited on the board and then became the president. But it's also framed how I engage with people when they reach out to me because it was such an important thing that she did for me. Yeah, it's actually not very hard, is it? It's quite simple. I helped someone yesterday who sent me a private message on LinkedIn wanting, you know, some assistance. You know, people can just come and ask things that are a bit unreasonable or whatever, but when they're reasonable requests, you know, and it just will help someone. It's such an easy thing to do to make such a big difference to somebody else. Yeah. It's, it's just a bit of insight. It's helping you reframe some of your thinking Mm. and casting another light on something that you can't necessarily see because of everything else that's happening. That's right. You can be too close to things and, and you're very stressed. You had, as you say, Mm. you had two months before you didn't have any income. So, you know, that's not exactly the time when you're thinking as clearly as you possibly could. (laughs) No, not at all. And the, the other thing I suppose with that is that you actually never know when you might be on the receiving end. People can reach a certain point and think they're above all of that. And yet you're a case in point where that actually happened to you. Yeah, exactly. And it's paying it forward, uh, you know, whatever you want to call it. It's it's being mindful that I have so greatly benefited from a kind conversation, a couple of kind conversations, the simplicity of it and the deep impact it has means that I really want to be in the position to do that for somebody else. I know that they will do it for somebody else. That's right. And it's very gratifying. So how difficult was it, though, to let go of your identity? You just said that people, they were worried when you were taking on that new role that you might go back to science, but you decided not to. Having worked for so many years as a scientific researcher, to let go of that would be quite difficult. And also you had other people that were looking at you. Others would see it as some sort of failure or some sort of betrayal that can often be the case so how did you come to terms with your new identity and how did you manage the perceptions of other people I viewed myself as a failure to start with you're not good enough to get a grant and here's the proof 
and I guess equally when I lost my position, my institute was actively recruiting people and I found that really hard. But then you know you're not wanted, so you've got to move on. What would I say? I think the transition into working as a research development manager was really good because it drew on my skills as a researcher, and my ability to communicate, my understanding of the drivers of research, so the currency of research, the publications, the students, the teaching, the service, all that sort of stuff. So I knew what made researchers tick. Because I had been on the NHMRC grant review panel and Cancer Australia review panels, I knew what good grants looked like. I'd won grants myself. I'd lost grants myself. I'd had fabulous publications in top journals and I'd had crappy ones too. And so that when you're engaging with a researcher to help get the best out of their research proposal, I could actually provide really constructive feedback. And also because I had that sort of broad knowledge, I could ask the dumb question, get them to elicit it clearly what they actually wanted to say. And equally, because I wasn't an academic anymore, I wasn't a threat to them and I didn't have an agenda. So it actually was really good because I was like a colleague who they could bounce ideas off and, you know, we could really build fabulous proposals and we did. And I worked, you know, in criminology, policy, law, clean energy, business, health, drug discovery, across the gamut of research conducted at Griffith and, you know, contributed to them winning ARC laureate fellowships And in my time at Griffith, I was able to help build collaborations and successful grants that brought in more than $20 million to the university. And I worked with a fabulous team and we've all provided that sort of level of advice. And, you know, I really enjoyed that opportunity. I got to engage with government. I got to advise the deans and provide advice to the deputy vice chancellor. And they listened to my opinion because it was grounded in fact and evidence and I really enjoyed the work and you know I've said to a number of people you could never do a degree in research development you actually have to have the lived experience to do it and each of my team members had a similar but different set of a background and they bought similar but different levels of value to the people that they were working with and you know it was an incredibly successful team and I really enjoyed that and I guess to go back so I didn't feel like a failure because I knew that I was creating knowledge in different ways and for me that's what a scientist does is create knowledge and look people looked at me as saying oh you poor thing you've lost your job and you're just a professional staff now And I thought, yeah, I'm really happy. I really enjoy the work that I'm doing and I'm really good at it. And I don't have to suffer the stress of, you know, the success rates of the NHMRC or the ARC or whatever. And that's your problem, not mine. I don't know where that saying comes from. You know, that goes something like, what other people think of you is none of your business. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And yes, I think some people 
who have been very successful and been able to stay in research would not have been able to make the transition that I did. Mm. You know, power to you because you, you have continued to evolve and shift yep. and understand yourself and say, well, what do I need? This is mm. what I need. So I guess that brings me to your move from the role you had in research development where you made the decision to move from there. Can you talk about how that came about? Sure. I was keen to, you know, do more, rise up in the ranks within the university, but that wasn't possible. And so I decided it was time for change. And a position came up within Queensland Government in health And it really did seem to play to the strengths of my interests. They're looking for content-specific knowledge in the health medical research sector because they were looking for export and import opportunities to showcase Queensland's excellence in health medical research. So I took on that position and that also had built into it that there's opportunities for secondment and growth. I think I was looking more for the secondment and growth sort of stuff. And there was pay parity, so that was all good. And so I left the university and went to work for Queensland Health. It was not what I expected. I learned uh, a lot about how government works and about how to work with government and how to engage with government. And I made a lot of really useful connections and contacts that have continued to be uh, wonderful today but it really wasn't for me I was quite unhappy in that sort of role yeah so it was short-lived <laughs> or 15 months and look that happens I told you that I'd had a mm. similar experience in about the same duration and you know what you read about a position and what they even may profess it's about, may even believe it's about because someone hasn't held the position before or they've kept the position as it was and now it can no longer be that. That's often all you've got to go on and you can try and do all your research but sometimes, sadly, you have to find out through that experience and the thing you show every time you have an experience is that capacity to reflect upon it, recognise what you learnt and the relationships. I know I look back at experiences I've had which have been like that and I think if I went back and could change that would I choose not to do that and inevitably I always have to say no even with the difficult things that came with it I met such wonderful people I got to learn some new skills I got to put forward some new programs you know I did achieve things and it was Mm. really gratifying so I'd have to lose all that as well as the other things That's right. I wouldn't change it. It was a stepping stone and I got some very valuable experience from my time in Queensland Government. I think having worked as a scientist and then worked as a research development manager, being contained, uh, (laughs) I was used to a fair amount of autonomy, which all of a sudden wasn't possible. That's right. And which helped you recognise, no, that's something I need. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And having a voice and playing a role in the strategy. So it really helped clarify to me. And actually, I had a conversation, another very useful conversation with a guy. He had been helping out with um, some judging for the Women in Technology Weird Awards. And 
you know, he was on the panel with me and, you know, I, I must have expressed my sort of frustration. And he said, oh, you know, we should have a chat. And he really challenged me to articulate what I wanted to do. And he said to me, so what do you want? And I went, oh, I don't know. <laughs> and it took a little while. And then I was able to come back to him and say, yes, I know what I want. I want to be involved in strategy. I want to be involved in engagement. I want to do stuff that is meaningful. And I want to have a voice. And that was like a bit of a clarity, you know, light bulb. Mm, that's right it is taking the time but sometimes you need someone else to throw those questions at you and force you to do it yeah and you know he was saying he was pushing and I'm not going to let up until you can actually come come up and it wasn't you know you have to answer now it was forcing me to actually think about it because then that shaped what I would look for when looking for other opportunities And I love the story about how your current role came about. And I told someone the other day and they they thought it was just quite extraordinary. So if you could talk about that now. Sure. So as I mentioned, I got involved with women in technology. I had been involved with them when I was a scientist and because they had these weird awards and my students and postdoc had won weird awards. And, but I got involved again when I lost my job and then invited onto the board But one of the things that women in technology do is mentoring and they run some really good mentoring programs. So they did training being a mentee and a mentor. And so I got matched with a young woman about seven years ago now. And, you know, she was going through some challenging times at work and seeking promotion and deservedly so. And so I worked with her to sort of reframe and showcase her CV and then to sort of get her ready for interview by asking her the questions she didn't want, you know, the questions that made her uncomfortable so that when she did get asked them in an interview setting, she would be a whole lot more at ease. And we had a mentoring relationship for about three months, which was what the sort of standard thing was with women in technology. And over the years, we would run into each other at various places. And she got a promotion and has done very well. And then I was at an event in my government position in the building where she works and we just had a, a chat and she said, how's it going? And I said, oh, I wasn't you know, not particularly happy. And she said, oh my God, I need somebody like you. And I said, well, I'll send you my CV and you can pay me properly. And I didn't hear anything more about that. And so I, I sent her my CV and I didn't hear anything. And then in March last year, I got an email from her and she said, the position's been approved. It's up, apply. And so I read the job description and I thought, oh my God, this is written for me. And so I applied for the position and I got the position as the deputy director of synthetic biology, future science platform at CSIRO. And my boss is the director and it's the same person that I provided some mentorship to many years ago. So it's a really nice, I don't know, circle. You know, I don't think it's a conflict because it was declared at the time but, yeah, it's really nice to see her in this leadership position and I really enjoy 
the role that I have and you know some of it's a bit crazy it's, it's a really fast-paced exciting role and I really really enjoy it and you have those things that you told that person that you wanted exactly wanted so I have the voice I have the the leadership I have the strategy I have the engagement and I'm building on my government connections and it's it's great it's, mm. it's really good fun I'm going to work not that I go to work anymore but um <laughs> you know what I mean <laughs> yes yeah the working from home going to work yeah, yeah exactly it's wonderful so you helped that young woman who then became your boss. You could not have designed that. You couldn't have thought, yes, well, I will mentor this young woman. No, never in my wildest dreams. She will give me my fabulous job. But, of course, that's what happened and these are the serendipitous events that can occur, yeah. but you can't go out thinking like that. And you are very generous. You're being very generous today. You're passionate about helping other women to forge careers in STEM can you talk about how you do that? And I'd like you to talk about what you think an academic career looks like in 2020, <sighs> particularly in reference to your own time. Yeah, so I think when I talk to people, the people who reach out to me are predominantly either PhD students or young postgrads. So they're doing their first postdoc or they've just done their second postdoc and they can see what the future looks like and the future scares them. So they see me and they think, oh, well, you've made the change. I can too. And yes, they can, but it's not that straightforward. And so what I talk to them about is understanding their inherent value and what their skills are and how they could use those skills in a different setting and what they might bring. So, for example, researchers have outstanding time and project management skills. But you wouldn't say, I'm a project manager, but you could deliver stuff on time and deliver it well. They're doing experiments, meeting grant outcomes, that sort of thing. They're really good at strategy because they're always thinking ahead, you know, What's my grant going to look like? What's my experiment going to look like? How's it all going to fit together? What does it mean for the, the theory, etc.? They're also really good at engagement because science is a sort of very community-based sort of thing. So they'll be doing sort of service to a professional organisation or a student committee or a you know, conference organisation. So getting involved in doing that sort of committee work. They'll also be talking, so good communication. You know, research is, particularly in Australia, is funded predominantly by taxpayers. And so the ability to communicate the value of what you do and why it's important and why as a taxpayer I should care, you know, that sort of stuff. So knowing and understanding that and getting the people to realise that they actually have these skills and then you know, helping them avoid the fatal mistake that I did was to bombard people with my academic CV because nobody could care less about my publications and my presentations and all that sort of stuff. And telling them that when they're looking for different positions, they need to actually look at what the job is asking. And if it is strategy, you know, how would they actually answer those questions and think about some vignettes that they could actually include and also properly finding out what the job is actually about <laughs> rather than just, you know, because sometimes you read the you like, that's me. And then you actually ring the person up and discover, oh, God, it's not. So to save you that sort of time. So I think a lot of time is about helping people sort of reframe 
they will always create knowledge, they'll just do it differently and that their skills are very valuable. I was talking to a young woman, you know, she's a neurobiologist, but she's actually a whole lot of other stuff as well and getting her to articulate the whole lot of other stuff. Reaching out to people, collecting information, talking to people whose jobs you might like to have, looking at jobs on LinkedIn and looking at position descriptions and going through the exercise of could I actually do that job or how would I get there? What do I need to do? Is there a sort of a stepping stone approach to where I want to go? So that's what I I talk about and the need for mentorship. And I always tell people to join Women in Technology because it's great fun. (laughs) And certainly in New South Wales, we have Frank on Women. Exactly. A very similar organisation. And Melina actually won one of the WIT awards for her contribution to a number of years ago, supporting women in science. So what does science look like? Oh, I think you've got to be really prepared for that really hard struggle that it is grant funded. There aren't permanent jobs. What can you tolerate? What are your limitations? Where do you want to go? Yeah, I think that real reality check is really important. Yeah, I do too. I'm not a believer in telling people not to do something because Mm. that has to be a personal choice. But it is about saying this is the reality. And of course, with COVID-19, you know, universities being hit financially. So therefore, the job market's contracting even more within universities. And of course, COVID-19 is also impacting other sectors. Mm -hmm. There are some areas that are growing as a result of COVID-19, not just in science. I know there's been some new government jobs in New South Wales about green space because they've recognised yeah. people need that, to, particularly mm. if they're living in high rise or other sorts of compacted living. So there are some opportunities, but of course, even if they're moving into other sectors, then they're going to have to think, how can I be competitive? Because it will become the employer's market, which we see at different times. Having worked mm. in careers, I've you know, been around long enough to have seen the recession we had to have in Australia. And then, of course, the global financial crisis, as we termed it in Australia. And so that really shifted things and people had to work so much harder to get positions that normally they may not even bother applying for. So so this is the other part is that it becomes very competitive. So people need to really think about what is it they want to do, what compromises will they make. And as you were saying before about being strategic, the researchers have capacity to be strategic so using that strength to actually think I may have to take something less than I would have normally but Mm -hmm. I will use that you even talked about that how taking a role as a stepping stone and that it's part of the whole that I look back at roles I've had and think about position I have now and I think I sort of had to have had that one as well as that one and that one they all together created the skill base I had that I then could apply successfully for this position so I think that it is going to be incredibly competitive. People have to recognise that. You've talked about, you've taken initiative, you've taken control, you've really understood what you have to find out. You talked about fact-finding and you've just really put yourself in that driver's seat and that's what you have to do. And it's not going to be easy. It's not easy and it's not easy putting yourself out there and I think that's why I found Women in Technology to be really good because it's sort of a peer support network you can meet other people who are in similar situations and, you know, 
just have that conversation and get a different perspective. I also recommend that you don't have just one CV, but you tailor your CV to whatever job you're applying for. And, you know, thinking about part of the Women in Technology Board Readiness Program, we had to write a board profile. And that was a really interesting and challenging exercise because it's describing you in one page. And that actually took a while to do, but it's something that I still chop up and copy and paste into different things that I've done, different jobs that I've applied for. And it's still very relevant information. And it can be used as your cover letter. It can be used as, you know, a frontier CV but it just gives people a taste of who you are and what you are. I think the guy who challenged me to articulate what I wanted was spot on. And in this very competitive market, you need to know your value and you need to know what you want and you need to be able to differentiate yourself and to go after it. Mm. Yeah, because I've seen lots of people that choose a course of study or a course of action because they can see that might get them a job but it's not sustainable. And also, you're just not as competitive. The people that articulate their needs and their real interests and their value, as you say, they're just going to be more successful because it's so much easier to convince someone else of that if you truly know it yourself. Yeah, if you believe in yourself. Yes, exactly. And I guess the other thing I talked about too, particularly to the younger people, is confidence and developing that self-confidence and how... Your CV is your calling card and it's the evidence that you can do what you say you can do. And I think that's really important too. So how you frame your CV is is really important. Absolutely, because you said before uh, when you were talking about research applications or job applications, it's why would anyone be interested? So you actually have to think about from their perspective, not yours. Yeah, exactly. So how are my skills going to benefit you? Mm. Yeah. Listening to you speak, I noted you used the word fortunate several times and it was interesting because you have gone through some pretty major challenges. Do you remember yep. that book, A Fortunate Life by yes, Amy Facey? Amy Facey did you yes. ever read that? I did. Yeah, what amazing life. And the fact that he couldn't read and then he wrote a book, you know, it's extraordinary. It was like really elderly when he did it. But, you know, as people were talking about that book, I think that was fortunate. But it is very much a mindset. And you found your way but you know some of those times people might have seen it and thought fortunate yet that's how you describe it can you talk a little bit about that I think that's really important I think it was being in the position to be able to ha to have choice and to be able to make choices and then being able to evaluate and this is probably subconscious evaluate the difference and then probably have an inkling about what I wanted and so I guess I was fortunate to have the choice, the ability to make choices. And then I guess I was also fortunate that other people made choices to choose me. So it's sort of both-sided. And I think as I get a bit older, I'm reflecting on gratitude. And, you know, when the days are particularly crappy, you think back about how fortunate I am to currently have this fabulous job to be able to work from home and to know that the work that we're doing is really meaningful. It's those things that I think, yeah. In a way, what you're saying there is that you sort of had a feeling at the time that it would be helpful in the long term, what you're going through, but really it's upon reflection that you can see that it's fortunate. Yeah, I think that's very accurate. 
you've got an inkling about what's going on and enough now to work out that's good, that's bad, and then somehow make the right choice based on what you know and then be able to reflect back afterwards that, yes, it might have been hard but it was the right choice and it was the right path. Like it was the right choice for me to leave Griffith. I went to the wrong job but I learned so I'm grateful for that learning and that stepping stone because it opened the door to something else. So I think probably the ability to reflect back is that's where you realise that you are fortunate and privileged to be able to do that. And you talked about helping people. You did it yourself. You learned how to do it and then you helped other people on how to reframe their CV. And what you're talking about too is reframing your experience. Yeah, I think I could talk to you about how horrible it was and, you know, it was devastating But if you stay in that devastating, I can't do anything, nobody's ever going to help me, that's where I'm going to stay and that's where the sort of wake-up call of you are better than this, don't believe those idiots, get up and show them what you can do. A lot of people would be very surprised and I think some of my former colleagues might think, how the hell did she end up as a deputy director? Well, you didn't know me, did you? So, And this is where your tagline fits perfectly. Yeah, uh, it's what you do next that matters. And so I guess that reflects both building on what's happened and making the most out of it and taking the positives, dealing with the negatives, taking the positives and moving on because the door is open. You have to have the mindset because if the door is closed, you can't do anything about it. And and you can find ways either the door is open or you go and look for a door that's open or you find a way to, to push it open a little bit. Yeah, kick it down. Yeah, I think it comes from people telling me I can't do stuff. You might uh, think you might think that, but I don't think that. Yep, and that's true. You talked about confidence. It can take many shapes and forms and sometimes it can just be exactly what you've just described there where it's like, no, I'll show you. I've done that myself and it's, you know, whether it's good or bad, it doesn't matter because it moves you to the next place. Exactly, and you get past that horrible sort of sense of worthlessness and lack of control and not being able to drive anything forward. Just sit there. Yeah, and you can't. Well, I can't anyway. So, and some people will need help to see a way forward, and that needs to be incremental. And I think that comes back to helping people see and understand their value. I know that my institute valued me, I guess, for the money I bought in, but equally for my public communication and my engagement, my service, my science as well. But in the end, it wasn't enough for them. But, you know, I was a public face for them. So, you know, I was valued to an extent. Hmm. That's right. And so the value come from you? Come from you. And being able to show people that you want it, you're engaged, you're invested, and this is where I'm heading is really important. For anybody changing careers, deciding to take a step up, you know, all that sort of stuff, you have to think about that to move forward really commit yeah you have to be committed you can see it in your face well thank you Alison that's been fantastic and 
I'm sure this will help a lot of people. You've been very generous and you continue to be generous to help other people, whether at the beginning or perhaps going through something like you went through in more of a mid-career. So thanks again. My pleasure. Can I add, it's what you do next that matters. Oh, I like it. That's a good tagline. (laughs) It's very true. You need the resilience and that just helps me each time. It's a good one. Thank you very much. Thanks, Sally. I really appreciate the opportunity. And enjoy working from home. (laughs) I will. (laughs) You have just listened to an episode of the Resourceful HDR podcast about the career and employment experiences of high degree researchers, that is, Master of Research, PhD and Professional Doctorate candidates, graduates and others in the HDR ecosystem. You can also find me on Twitter as Resourceful HDR and on LinkedIn, Sally Purcell at Macquarie University. Macquarie University students and staff can also access the HDR Professional Development iLearn site. Mm-hmm.